0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we'll be beginning our 2016 Highlight Reel Week that will include five of Dr. Newfeld's most impactful messages of this past year. So let's go back to a message from our Easter series, Journey to the Cross, with a message that's entitled, The Invitation to Come on a Journey to the Cross. Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 12 right now as we join Dr. Newfeld.
1: I'm going to invite you to come with me on a journey. I want us to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Try to visualize the event and try to experience what it felt like for Jesus to live through the events that has been called Passion Week or the week leading up to the cross and then past that to his resurrection. Try to sense what is happening. Notice the historical background. Envision Who was there when it happened? Notice the conflict and controversy rising. See the drama and the tension unfolding. And in the middle of it all, see Jesus on a donkey, then standing in the dispute with Pharisees in the temple, washing his disciples' feet, praying in the garden, being slapped in the face and mocked, and finally nailed to a cross. I want us not just to recount the events. I want us to envision these events deeply. Many of you remember the old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sounds like a silly question. Of course I wasn't there, it happened so long ago. But the writer of that old spiritual says, sometimes it causes me to tremble. He feels that he was so deeply entered into the picture of our dying Savior that he actually feels himself to have witnessed the events. There's an old hymn written in the 1800s by a woman, Elizabeth Clefane, and it gives the same sense. Let me quote the second verse of that old hymn. It says, "'Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me, and from my smitten heart with tears to wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness.'" Again, the idea is that the worshiper is taken into the actual event itself, that she begins to weep as if she were actually there. Or Let me take you back to the 12th century and hear from an ancient Christian, one named Bernard of Clairvaux. He wrote, O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded, with thorns thine only crown. How art thou pale with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. And now listen to these words. How does thy visage languish, which once was bright as morn? I hope you heard that. It's as if Bernard is looking carefully at how the complexion of Jesus has changed, but how can that be since he lived 1,100 years later? The answer is that he was so deeply immersed in the passion of Jesus that he thought of himself as if he were there and had seen it with his own eyes, and he was left unable to speak. That's why he writes... What language can I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? He's struggling to put into words the experience of walking with Jesus on a journey, the journey to the cross. So that's my invitation. Come with me on a journey. I'm going to organize the material from all four Gospels, put them in chronological order as best I can, and invite you to watch Jesus for one week of his life. From Palm Sunday all the way to Easter Sunday, see him so well that you might feel you've been there. I'm doing this so that we might prepare our souls for the Christian celebration of Easter. As many of us know, over one-third of all that we have recorded about Jesus is taken up in that one week of his life. We know that the Bible records his birth narrative— There are four chapters discussing that. We know almost nothing of his childhood for the first 30 years or so of his life. In all, there are only 12 verses in our Bible that describe that. But the Bible does tell us of his three years of ministry. There are 55 chapters on that. But then comes that one week, the week we call Passion Week. The Bible teachers have sometimes called what we find in our Bible a disproportionate chronology. Everything we read of Jesus is weighted to that one amazing week, 30 chapters dealing with one week. Now, I'm about to tell you something I have felt for many years. I know that in Canada today, Christmas is a major deal and Easter is a minor deal. How did this happen? I don't mean how did this happen in our culture, how did this happen in the church? Now, I understand when non-Christians put a greater emphasis on Christmas than on Easter. I don't understand how the church got there, why Christmas is so full of pageants and Easter has so few and is quickly gone. And so let's try to correct that. Let's enter deeply and passionately into this one week, so deeply that we, like Bernard of Clairvaux, seem to even notice the change in Christ's complexion. But I also make an invitation to those of you who have no faith to come along as well with me on this amazing journey to the cross. You'll find yourself overwhelmed at a loss for words with what you're going to find. Now, before we begin our journey, let me make an apology. I can't possibly fully describe all that happened in that one week. Some of you will become frustrated with me. Why didn't he say more about, you know, whatever that thing is? I might miss something vital, but there is a method. Each one of these next 10 days, I will take you through a single day in the life of Jesus. And I'm going to, as vividly as I am able, to describe what Jesus did on Palm Sunday, then on Monday, and all the way through Easter Sunday. Because there's so little said about what Jesus did on Wednesday, and so much said about what he did on Friday, I'm going to combine Wednesday with Thursday morning into the evening, and then I will use two days to cover Good Friday. Furthermore, I will say nothing about Saturday in the tomb, even though I am aware that there are things that can be said on that subject, but I will pass this discussion by. But what I want is that we do more than listen, but that we try to use our imagination and see the actual events. What we want to do is relive A week which purchased salvation for all who will believe. A week in which the kingdom of Satan was utterly defeated and lay in ruins. A week in which the Father reconciled the world to himself. Walk with me as we journey to the cross. We begin our journey on a Sabbath. John the Apostle, who was there, says that it was six days before the Passover. Passover would have happened on Friday, but since the Jews counted the beginning of a new day at sundown, John is calculating the days in a Jewish way. It would have been Saturday, and the Passover would have occurred on the next Thursday. Jesus has arrived in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be filled to overflowing with pilgrims. The towns of Israel would be pretty well empty as the greatest Jewish feast of the year was about to be celebrated. Jesus has come to Bethany, the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany is about three kilometers from Jerusalem, an easy walk. His enemies are trying to kill him, and interestingly enough, Jesus has come to Jerusalem to let them do just that. He had come to Jerusalem to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be maligned and lied against, to receive the fists of men in his face, to be hailed in mockery as their king, to be whipped mercilessly, and then to be nailed to a cross, and to die between two common thieves. That's why he arrived in Bethany, and that's where he was on that Saturday. Jesus knew his assignment from God was to come to Jerusalem, where both Satan and men would conspire against him. Isaiah 53 uses words to describe his assignment from God. Bruised, pierced, wounded, despised, rejected, oppressed, forsaken, slaughtered, crushed, cut off. These are the words that describe his assignment. This is why Jesus came to Bethany to fulfill the Scriptures. But he had come to the very special town of Bethany because it was there that he raised Lazarus from the dead some time earlier. He came to be with people, and they prepared a dinner for him there. We don't know how many people came to that place. Both Matthew and Mark tell of the same event. They identify the home where the dinner was held. It was the home of a man named Simon the leper. We don't know anything about Simon the leper outside the fact that it was his name, and therefore, we know that he was a leper. there's a lot of conjecture about who he was. Some think he may have been Lazarus' father and that Lazarus and his sister Mary and Martha lived in that home because Simon couldn't anymore. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that. There's another theory which seems much more plausible to me. It's that Simon was one of those lepers whom Jesus actually healed. I think he was likely a very wealthy man. He had a large home. It probably had an open courtyard that would seat many hundreds of people. And since Jesus had delivered him from the agony of a slow leper's death, when Jesus was back in Bethany, Simon invited Lazarus, the man Jesus raised from the dead, and his family, and the disciples, and Jesus into the home, along with a good many of the people of Bethany who had loved Jesus. And It is there in that home that we see passion. Indeed, passion is everywhere. First, we notice passion of a woman named Martha. Now, it's clear that Martha is not in her home. She's in the home of Simon the leper. But the picture of Martha rolling up her sleeves and serving is the vision I have of Martha. Remember, Martha was once upset with her sister Mary because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and learning, which left Martha alone in the kitchen. You remember that Jesus told her to leave her sister alone, that she had chosen the better. But Martha was one who served. That that was her personality. The second thing I remember about Martha is when her brother Lazarus was dead, she heard that Jesus was coming. Mary remained in the house weeping, but Martha was on her feet and met Jesus on the road, even saying to him, I believe that God will give you anything that you ask. And when we come back, I want us to see how the passion around Jesus exposed the heart attitudes of Martha and Mary and the disciples, and what we see, I promise, will surprise us.
0: partner to tell monthly partner program continues to hit new heights of involvement from friends from coast to coast. There is not a single province who isn't represented by a committed partner in ministry. The regular gifts of monthly partners have become a stabilizing and foundational force for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. The impact extends to every aspect of ministry, breaking down barriers, financial or otherwise, for making Bible teaching resources available to anyone seeking to know the truth of the gospel and desiring to grow deeper in their relationship to the Lord. So if you're a monthly partner and you wonder what impact you're making, let me assure you that you're an integral part of all that is done to lead people closer in their walk with Jesus every day. To find out more about becoming a partner to tell monthly partner and join this incredible group of ministry friends, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or sign up online at backtothebible.ca. Martha, if I
1: understand her personality is a woman of action. She's not a contemplative personality. Don't look for her to sit among scholars or to give a teaching on the nature of Jesus. She just loved serving. It's what she did best. I have no doubt that's how she worshipped, by doing something for Jesus. If she took care of the meal, well, then no one had to worry because she had everything looked after. She organized everyone else who was helping. She was boss in the kitchen. I have no doubt she spent the night before Jesus got there getting everything ready. She knew how many guests were there. She knew how much food. She had her best recipes. She probably knew everyone was going to sit. Martha worshiped by serving. It's who she was. And serving reflected her passion for Jesus. It was her way of loving him. Now, I'm going to guess that neither Lazarus nor Simon the leper spent any time in the kitchen at all. For that matter of fact, neither did Mary. But I can almost imagine how the conversation around the table went. Imagine Lazarus recounting the story of his death. I'm going to guess that everyone there simply wanted to hear it again. If I'm right about Simon, imagine him telling the story of his leprosy and of his healing and about how Jesus had given him life. I can also hear Simon the leper telling of the day he felt a tingling in his dead hands and feet and flesh literally growing into his mutilated hands. And Lazarus, how do you tell the story of hearing the voice of Jesus calling over into the land of the dead and death itself surrendering its victim to the authority of the man who sat before them at that table? I imagine both men standing at the table in front of a large crowd declaring that entire story. This, they said, is no ordinary man. This is the Lord of Eternity. Then the crowds of people who were listening, as these men stood at their table making sure everyone would hear, the people there would have had their eyes glistening. This was the king they had waited for. And in the middle of all these stories of worship directed at Jesus, in which one after another spoke, and you could have heard a pin drop in that room, and as every eye was fixed on Jesus, and just when it seemed that not one word that could be spoken could adequately express their adoration, at just that moment... And I think the timing must have been exquisite that Mary stepped forward. She took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. There are several things you shouldn't miss in this. First of all, please notice what she did. She had a pound of pure nard. Pure nard was a perfume that was imported from India. You could get the hybrid stuff, which was a lot cheaper, but the pure stuff came only from India, and it was extremely expensive. The most likely scenario here is that it was kept in a sealed jar and was really not intended for use at all. Since it would sell for 300 denarii, we know that's basically one year's worth of wages. So imagine, for instance, that you make $65,000 a year. That would be a $65,000 bottle of perfume. Would you be that quick to pour it on someone's feet? It seems quite likely that this would have been Mary, Martha, and Lazarus insurance money or their savings, which if something went wrong, they could sell it and still feed their family. The next thing you should know is that according to Mark, she had to actually break the neck of the bottle. That's how you opened it. I can almost picture her, the stories of Jesus being told, and she comes out with the bottle, and then in that crowded room, everyone would hear the bottle being broken. People gasped. (gasps) Now, and this is so vital, please understand what she did next. According to both Matthew and Mark, she poured the perfume on his head, but John says she poured it onto his feet. But listen, there's a pound of the stuff. In the book of Mark, Jesus is explaining what she did, and he says she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for my burial. In other words, with a full pound of perfume, she begins by pouring it onto his head, and she keeps on pouring. It's running down his head and down his beard and on his shoulders and down his gown and all over his body, and she finishes off pouring it onto his feet. Doctor Donald Carson believes that the perfume so covered his whole body it would have left Jesus smelling this way for the entire Passion Week. Indeed, Carson believes that this was the last lovely odor on the body of Christ when he went to the cross. It was his constant reminder that, that he was loved and adored and worshipped. But she's not done. She loosens her hair, something a, a Jewish woman would never have done in public. Some Bible teachers express shock over this because they say that it has a sexual component tied to this. But I think they miss the point. Long before this event, there was another woman. You'll probably remember her, and this one was a prostitute. Luke talks about her in the seventh chapter of Luke. He says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wiped them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now please see all the parallels here. When Mary does this, not with ointment or tears, but with enormously expensive perfume, she is in effect identifying with that sinful woman. She pours onto Jesus the best she has and says, I'm not worthy to be a mere slave washing your feet, but I am moved that I'm given this moment to show how I adore you. John Stott said the following about worship. We are most truly human when we are on our knees before our Creator. But now in that exquisite moment when the crowd is hushed and tears of emotion are rolling down faces with reddened eyes, John tells of something menacing that has crept into the room. Judas stands to his feet and roars with anger. Why wasn't this ointment sold and given to the poor? This is a waste. Now, John must interject at this moment because there's something we must know. Judas wasn't concerned with a poor. He was a thief, and having charge of the collection would have stolen the amount for himself. Not only is there worship, but evil is fully engaged in this room. Did you know that Judas was not alone in his criticism? Matthew tells us that the disciples, all other 11, agreed with Judas, and Mark tells us that many of the other guests at the table did as well. Have you ever noticed how criticism and disapproval spread quickly? Can you see people nodding in agreement as Judas speaks words inspired by the prince of darkness? The holiness of the moment seems to leave the room. In its place is condemnation and blame. And where is Jesus in this? Do you see him? After Judas had stood and broken the sacred moment, and as murmuring is spreading around the room, Jesus stands. Leave her alone, he roars. You always have the poor, but you won't always have me. This was done to prepare for my burial. Everyone is stunned. What did he say? And then putting his hand on Mary's head, and she is weeping on her knees before him, he loudly proclaims, And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This act on this night will never, ever be forgotten as one of the greatest moments of worship in history. If Carson is right, then even in death, the pure nard lingered on Jesus' body, pointing to the exquisite, precious beauty of his death. Mary's role was prophetic. It pointed to the beauty of her Lord's passion, that he had come to Jerusalem to die. Now, contrast that to Judas. His betrayal of Christ was also prophetic. He, too, played a vital role in the crucifixion of Jesus, for he opened the door to his sufferings. But what a contrasting role. One an enemy, the other a passionate lover of Jesus. Both fulfill the plan of the Father, but oh, how different is the outcome of those two lives. And Jesus, with eyes blazing, as he looks over a crowd that would so quickly go from adoring worship to biting criticism, knows that this is but the beginning of the week that would expose the hearts of everyone there and in which he would drain the bitter cup for our sins. Why do you want to be here this week? It's because you need to be here. You need to say with the old Negro spiritual, I was there when they crucified my Lord, and I trembled, for I saw my sin, and I saw his suffering, and I saw Christ's amazing love."
0: John, thanks so much for your introduction to this series again today of Journey to the Cross. Uh, it's a great opportunity to consider Easter and all that it means within the Word. Uh, But John, do you think for some reason we've sort of let Easter take sort of a back seat in our culture?
1: I really have thought this for quite some time. Um, Christmas is celebrated so well by our culture. I don't know whether well is the right word, but it's so greatly celebrated by our culture. And so it's very easy for us in the church to do the same. We know that people are open to coming to church at Christmas. And so, you know, we develop all sorts of programs around that. But Easter has been languishing for some time, and we're belying the teaching of Scripture. Easter, not Christmas, is the greatest time of the year. I think we need to recapture Easter traditions. I know some families in their own home on Christmas Eve will always make sure families together and they read the Christmas story. Why not bring families all together, open the Word together, and recount the dealings of Jesus during Passion Week, even rehearse them in our own families? I think that would be helpful.
0: What a great idea, what a great thought, and what a great challenge. Thanks so much again, John, and we look forward to hearing from you again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada. You know, what a vivid picture to see here the passion of Mary as she poured the perfume over Jesus in a beautiful display of worship. I hope this teaching has inspired you to better understand what Christ has done. He alone is worthy of our true worship. Join us tomorrow as we continue the 2016 highlight series with a message from Dr. Newfeld's Remembering the Reformation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Back by popular demand, Back to the Bible Canada is announcing our second Israel Experience Tour scheduled for May 2018. There's plenty of time to plan for this trip to the Promised Land, a trip of a lifetime. Join the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway, and special musical guests, and so much more. The initial Israel experience was sold to capacity. So although it's a year away, it's time to register and avoid disappointment. Join us in Tiberias. Experience sailing and worshiping on the Sea of Galilee. Visit the Mount of Beatitudes, the Village of Nazareth, the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Masada, Qumran, the Dead, See and the list goes on, and at each location be inspired by the teaching of Dr. John. Check out all the details today at backtothebible.ca or call us for more information at 1-800-663-2425.